We, um, we just finished discussing the proof of work mining network and, and the seven layers of security, energy, technology, uh, politics, finance, the network itself, the spatial security, the temporal security. Um, so what you have is you have, have Bitcoin as a decentralized crypto asset network. And the thing that pops up a lot is, is the question of, what does energy usage look like over time? And is energy usage going to keep increasing as the price of Bitcoin increases? And I've seen commentary on this. I think a lot of people get it wrong. They seem to think that as the price of Bitcoin increases, the energy usage will increase linearly. And uh, if there's a 100x increase in Bitcoin price, there's a 100x increase in energy usage. And I think it's just worthwhile to make the observation that over the past 10 years, the, the mining network has gone from being energy intensive to being technology intensive. Another way to say it is, is in every single industry, you go from being labor intensive to capital intensive. When we started with a million people sowing or farming, farming, it was a labor intensive activity. As the capital equipment gets better, you know, first you have, you know, horses and carts and ox carts, and then you have tractors, and then you have mega tractors, then you have factories. Um, all of a sudden, the amount of labor matters a lot less, and the amount of capital equipment matters a lot more. I mean, there's a time when 90% of the country was farmers, and now just one or 2% of the people in the country produce all the food. Mm -hmm. It's because it's become technology intensive. Um, the Bitcoin network is similar in that, except substitute for labor energy and substitute for capital technology. Uh, if we go back 10 years, it probably took 100 times as much energy to develop, uh, to generate an exahash as it is right now. Uh, the, an S19 takes 30 megawatts per exahash, but an S9 takes 150 megawatts an exahash. So you have a 5x improvement in energy efficiency over one generation of equipment. We're like on the seventh generation of mining equipment. Um, if you go back two or three generations, then you, you get that 100x increase in energy intensity. If you look at where we are today, and you go forward 10 years, it's, it's reasonable to expect that you will get um, improvements in efficiency from three dynamics. You've got halvings in the protocol, and we have one every four years. So that means that over the course of a decade, you have a 5x increase in efficiency from the halvings. Then if you have a 4x increase in energy efficiency and you get it twice or a 5x and a 4x, you get a 20x increase over two more generations of hardware. And now you've got a 20x times a 5x or about a 100x increase in efficiency. So Bitcoin price could go up by 100 and the network efficiency would go up by 100 and the energy consumption could be flat. And, uh, and that's an important thing to keep in mind because people sometimes think, well, energy is used to secure the network. 
No, it's crypto energy. It's encrypted energy that's used to secure the network. And in order to get it from raw energy to crypto energy, you have to run it through a SHA-256 miner that's properly engineered in a heat sink. And so as the heat engineering improves, the miners get more efficient. And as the semiconductor technology for ASICs improves, the miners get more efficient. And what you have in that dynamic is a, a never-ending struggle between brute force and technique and kind of reminds you of something like nature and, and competition. Like uh, there's two ways to do things, right? You either do, you know, use raw labor or you use technology. And it's important to have that dynamic or, or that, that yin and yang because when the technologies, technologists get lazy and they stop improving, then the raw material or the, or the brute force overwhelms and then and the control of the network shifts back to the energy holders. But to the extent that uh, the technologists upgrade their engineering facilities, their heat technology, their chip technology, then the energy becomes less important. The technology becomes more important. Mm -hmm. And the combination of both of these things require capital free-flowing capital. And in a free market, the capital is continually seeking the best use. Should I invest money in creating the next generation of SHA-256 miners? Should I invest money in engineering a more efficient Bitcoin mine with immersion cooling? Should I invest money in, um, in commercializing more energy or plugging in more energy and just manufacturing the same design over and over again, you know, and, and uh, so what you have is this nice delicate dance or balance of power. But uh, a model you can think of is when we first started Bitcoin mining, it was all energy intensive. We were using off the shelf computer equipment and you were throwing raw power and, and raw commodity materials at it. It's rotated through a, a set of generations of, of hashing equipment. So now you need energy, but, but the limiting factor is not really the energy. The limiting factor on generating hashes is the mining rigs. And maybe you could say the limiting factors on doing this well is the mining rigs properly installed in a mining center with the right cooling technology. Mm -hmm. And if you look forward another, another decade, you'll see it's going to be much more technical intensive and you could have all the energy in the world, but you're not going to be able to generate crypto hashes. The, um, the break-even point of an S19 is like 40 cents a kilowatt hour. You could pay 40 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity and make money. The break-even point for an S9 is eight or nine cents a kilowatt hour. If you have 20 cent power, you can't make money. You got to turn it off. The break-even point for the generation of equipment before that is like two cents a kilowatt hour. You can't pay three. You got to turn it off. And the generation before that, you're down to half a penny a kilowatt hour. So if you're looking to run antiquated equipment to generate hashes, you have to be stealing the power. Mm -hmm. If you have free energy and it's literally stolen or it's given away, you can run 
eight-year-old or five-year-old equipment. But if you're paying your way, you have to run modern equipment. So this is a dynamic model, but it's important because it's a dynamic evolution of the sophistication of the Bitcoin security network that has Darwinian overtones. Because the Bitcoin miner that just buys a bunch of equipment five years ago and stops upgrading becomes obsolete. You know, you won't last 10 years without equipment. I mean, your break-even point becomes uh, a tenth of a penny after mm -hmm. once you're three or four generations behind. So this is like nature healing itself. It's a very natural process. You, you, if you're out of touch and you're a thousand miles away, the free market somewhere else is going to keep moving the state of the art forward. And should you isolate yourself, you will, you will find that you can't generate enough hash power to participate in the revenues and the transaction fees. And it's the, it's the network's way of simply squeezing you mm. off the network. Now, what that means is Bitcoin miners are organic creatures with a negative feedback loop. I mean, in essence, a market mechanism. The difficulty adjustment is not just tactically every two weeks in the protocol. Mm. The difficulty adjustment is in the market because if you don't upgrade your hardware every four years, you become uncompetitive. And you mm. can't upgrade your hardware every four years unless you are a responsible custodian of your capital. If you spent all your money, if you didn't save any money, if you're not trustworthy, if you don't have credit, you can't buy any equipment. And so, so to stay competitive on the Bitcoin network, you have to be credit worthy, you have to be competent, and you have to be, um, you have to be credible. Someone that has the technology has to be willing to sell to you. And so I, I would say that the dynamic nature of the network is you have this competition between minor operations and the technology providers and the energy sources and the political jurisdictions, and you have to be upgrading and, you're, and you probably need to be improving your efficiency by a factor of, of one and a half or two every year, you know, you're subject to Moore's law and this uh, competitive Darwinian pressure. And the result of that is energy, energy consumption is going to uh, fall uh, per exahash. Mm. We'll go from 150 megawatts in exahash to 30 megawatts in exahash to five megawatts in exahash, to one megawatt in exahash, to half a megawatt, you know, and on down, we're just going to move, move down this efficiency curve. You can, you could imagine if I gave you, uh, you know, this supercomputer, you know, the size of a sugar cube, you know, it's just look, look at the amount of power on uh, modern semiconductors, right? Think about what's in the latest iPhone chip. We just keep compressing computing power and we find a way. And human, human ingenuity is, is like that. They will keep finding a way uh, to, to create more hash power using better technique. And um, 
So that suggests that energy consumption will probably increase non-linearly, like with the log of the price. If the price goes up by a factor of 10, energy consumption might go up by a factor of two or two and a half or right. three. At some point, you start to think you will roll over, you'll peak. We might have already done it. Mm -hmm. You peak energy consumption and then you taper off or it holds constant as the hash rate increases. And instead of putting, instead of a Bitcoin miner spending half of their budget on energy, you roll over to spending half of your budget on capital, right? You're buying capital and amortizing it. Yes. And pretty soon your variable cost on energy is 5% and 40% is capital equipment. And what you've got is not an energy war to see who controls the network. You've got a technology war to right. see who controls the network. And um, why is that good? Well, because um, energy is a raw material in the universe. But seventh generation SHA-256 miners are specialty equipment, mm -hmm. right? Everybody on Earth can find some energy and throw it at the problem. But, but you know, throwing the 11th generation of SHA-256 mining equipment at the problem is something that probably no one's going to be able to do unless they spent a decade or two decades engineering that equipment and mm -hmm. thinking about it. So you have a specialization in the same way that John Deere tractors are specialized after a hundred mm -hmm. years. And, you know, if you, if you went back to a farmer in 1850 and you describe what a farmer in 2020 can do, right. It's like night and day. Right. That, that's what's going on with the network. So, and uh, I think it's it's self healing, uh, self sealing, self correcting, and uh, the combination of the Darwinian and and Adam Smith capitalist competition is critical advantage for for Bitcoin versus say a proof of stake network. Right. Because in proof of stake network, you pretty much turn off energy competition. You turn off semiconductor competition and innovation, you turn off engineering and heat engineering innovation, you turn off capital financial competition, yeah. you turn off the political element. And that means that I can get fat, dumb and happy, just, you know, I can just post a billion worth of my tokens and go to sleep for a decade. Right. And, uh, and no one's trying to make the network better. So it's not being tested. There's no stressing of it, right? And, and ultimately, the problem with that is you're going to suffer in integrity and durability. Right. So we're again at this point where it's the Bitcoin mining network itself is a free market in and unto itself. And it reflects many of these properties of capitalism. So there's this you know, this yin and yang, I guess, of efficiency and magnitude sort of going back and forth. And to your point, that's reflected in many markets historically, where we shift from labor intensity to capital intensity. And this basically means that the capital, as it becomes more plentiful and effective at amplifying labor, you need less labor to accomplish the same results, right? This is a natural capitalistic progression. Um, does this all, let me ask you this. So the, the, the useful life of a miner, I'm not sure what that is. Maybe it varies. I think it was four to five years, four, four to five years. years. So we have the older generations rolling to cheaper energy to remain 
in the marketplace. Newer generations. Steel energy, right? If I boot, I, I, if I can bootleg energy, then right. I can run old generation miners profitably because my variable cost is zero. Right, and then so newer generations would then be allocated to more expensive energy resources initially. <laughs> Does this then? Are we? Is this an aspect of the gradually increasing fully amortized cost to produce each Bitcoin, or you actually because there's more capex? I mean, maybe the capex opex mix is changing, but the overall cost to produce each Bitcoin is rising, which is putting upward pressure on its price in the marketplace. Is that another way to look at this? Uh, you know, that's not clear to me. Um, you know, what's the price of energy? Is it going up or going down? Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe the price of energy is going up and then it's going down. Yes. But what's this, the price of what's the price of semiconductors? Is it going up or is it going down? Right. Well, sometimes it's going up. It's going up if there's a monopoly on the semiconductor chips, and then it's going down when someone else enters the market. And you know, you're in our Intel chip. A three eighty six chip is pretty cheap now, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. chip. So chip prices are coming down, but the next generation is going up. And but again, it's a competitive thing. There's what's the price of semiconductors? Well, if there's only one provider and there's a monopoly, then you could say, well, the price of your semiconductors is going to go up every generation forever and, right. and cost of Bitcoin mining is going to go up. But there isn't one semiconductor company. There's multiple. If there is one, we're back to uh, Jeff Bezos statement. You know, your margin is my opportunity. Yeah. Bitcoin is an open market for mining so that so anybody can engineer a SHA-256 chip. Anybody, you know, there's there is no one type of Bitcoin miner. There are people slapping these things in the back of trucks and driving them around and plugging them into pow bootleg power lines, right? It's not very efficient. Yeah. There are people that slap 500 Bitcoin miners into a container and they just drop it on top of a pad. Does it work? Sure it does. Um, is it properly heat engineered? No. Does it get hot? Very. What's the consequences of running hot? You have to turn off the mining equipment some of the time, so you lose efficiency. And they burn out, and their useful life is not four years, it's three years. <clears throat> it's two years, right? So, so there's a competition here. And just like there's competition for energy, how will energy go up forever? No, I mean energy could go to zero, right? If I if I if I invent coal fusion, yeah, you know, will semiconductors go up forever? No, they'll go up until you know. At some point, Bitmain is is you know they raised their prices, and then everybody started talking to Intel. You go to another semiconductor company and you say, well, look, Bitmain's, you know, triple their prices and now you can make this much and now you draw somebody else into the space. Yes. So, so well, I think that there's going to be, there's a dynamic equilibrium between the engineering and mm -hmm. the semiconductor and the, um, and the energy and the best capitalized companies, they can buy the new equipment. You know, like the publicly traded North American companies, they will go and buy all the new shiny equipment and uh, and poorly capitalized companies will run the old equipment. Mm -hmm. And then and then you will roll forward like that. So, let me, let me, OK, but I'm well, just trying so to it's, it's not clear to me how, how much it will cost to create a Bitcoin. Yes. Right. Because I mean, that's a function of. 
Well, I mean, if we look, maybe the profitability of Bitcoin is a function of the rate at which we add hash power versus the rate at which we add Bitcoin holders. If we increase the number of Bitcoin holders by a factor of 10, and we increase the hash power by a factor of two, then uh, the profitability and the revenue per exahash is going to go up by a factor of five, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And if we increase the exahash by a factor of 10 and the holders by a factor of two, the profitability is going to deteriorate. And uh, so the profitability of the Bitcoin mining is going to have an impact on the rate of development of Bitcoin mining semiconductor chips, mm -hmm. right? It, so here's what I was saying is that every, so the total OPEX and CAPEX going into the Bitcoin network at a halving, you know, it goes, that total allocation of expense goes from producing, call it 900 Bitcoin per day to 400. Well, the revenue gets cut about in half. Not yeah. Quite so, so, so the production cost per Bitcoin is effectively doubled. And then my thinking was that this higher cost to produce each Bitcoin is actually incentivizing miners to hold, right? They don't want to sell below cost of production. So that's what's bootstrapping Bitcoin's price uh, upward. Yeah, well, I, can, I mean, I can see once every four years, the, the energy cost doubles. But we don't, but, but if, if once every four years I upgrade the equipment and it's five times faster. Mm. Right. Right. Now the question is how much did you pay for the equipment? Right. Yes. Okay. Right. And the answer is if you paid a lot for the equipment and you now amortize the cost of the equipment and the cost yes. of the Bitcoin and you've got an answer, but that's a price that, that a vendor charges you, which could be triple or yeah. half depending upon the competition. In a very competitive market, well, let's say it a different way. Like if you're buying Intel grade 386, 46 chips and slapping them into your home appliance, what is the price of the intelligence that you put inside your toaster mm. as a percentage of the cost of the toaster? It's pretty cheap, right? I mean, like at some point, the cost of intelligence starts to drop because it's a commodity market. AMD drove down the prices. And so everybody can put intelligence into their appliance because of competition. If there was no competition, it might go the opposite way. So I, I think that um, the, the protocol guarantees us through halvings that we're, we're going to have to get five times as efficient every decade. But the other dynamics like the rate of technology advance go even faster. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're just as much. And uh, I, I do agree with you on this one idea. We're in a gold rush right now, or yes. a Bitcoin rush, call it. Right. Between now and like 2035, um, in 2035, we'll have mined 99% of the Bitcoin. Right. So you've got 14 years. And during the 14 years, the block rewards are pretty high, relatively speaking. And, um, and so it's very lucrative to be in the business, but the business is going to become less profitable, likely. At the very least, we know it's going to rotate into a transaction fee business. Mm -hmm. So instead of 90% block reward, 10% transaction fee, you could expect 90% transaction fee, 10% block reward. Mm -hmm. 
And the transaction fees are also going to scale more likely with the log of the price, not linear to the price. Mm -hmm. If I want to move a million dollars, I might pay you 10 bucks. And if I want to move $10 million, I would pay $12, but I'm not going to pay $100. I'm just going to overbid the million dollar buyer. And when I want to, if I want to move $50 million, I'll bid $14. Yeah. So the transaction fees will increase with the, with the number of, you know, transactions on the base layer. And uh, that'll be a dynamic, but the block rewards go away. And so if you're a Bitcoin miner, it's a very uh, lucrative high growth business right now but it will move toward an efficient transaction security network later. And you would do well to buy Bitcoin, right? That's why it makes sense to hodl Bitcoin if you're a Bitcoin miner, because it's your hedge. If Bitcoin, it's a hedge against two things, right? It's, it's a hedge against the inevitable protocol, which is the protocol says Bitcoin mining is going to get 90% less lucrative over the course of, right? cut in half once, cut in half twice, mm -hmm. right? Over the course of 12 years, you get cut in half three times. So it's a, it's a hedge against that, but it's, that's a long-term. It's also a hedge against the near-term hash rate explosion. If you're mining Bitcoin right now, and if somebody comes out of the blue and they bring a lot of hash rate on the network faster than you expected, then your market share gets cut in that situation, Bitcoin may win. If, if everybody believes Bitcoin's going to win and there's a flood of people to enter the mining business, you want to own Bitcoin. Mining's yep. going to get competitive. Bitcoin's going to get more valuable. So you definitely don't want to be in a situation where, where you mine Bitcoin, you sell all your Bitcoin for cash. And then you're, you know, in that case, you're attempting to run a cash business in 16 years, when the revenue has been cut in half four times. Right. Right. And, and presumably, if you cut 100 to 50 to 25 to 12 to six, when you're generating 6% of the revenue and everybody else has had 12 years or 16 years to get in the game, it's going to be more of a commodity business. Right. Now, that's not to say that a Bitcoin miner can't, uh, can't compete and evolve. It may be a great business then, too. It may, it may be that Bitcoin miners evolve to be running lightning nodes or running mm -hmm. layer two platforms of other sorts. You know, it, it might be that as a Bitcoin miner, you have a huge Bitcoin treasury mm -hmm. and then you can generate yield on it. Mm -hmm. It might be that there are other applications. We'll talk about some. It's very logical for Bitcoin miners maybe to get into some of these other application areas that yeah. will pop up in time. And there are technology possibilities here. So, so um, I, I would say the logical thing to do in business is you, you don't worry about what happens 16 to 20 years out. If you can make a ton of money now, I mean, you might very well make enough money now to have 10, 20, 30, 100 billion dollars of capital then, at which point you can mm -hmm. go buy something else to yeah. get you in the business. And my other, my other point, I guess, here is, yes, it's true, Bitcoin miners should keep Bitcoin, but it's also true that non-Bitcoin miners should keep Bitcoin. <laughs> 
like the like the, if you believe in Bitcoin, then the logical the the logic follows that no matter what business you are in, if you have operating income, you should invest in Bitcoin. Right. And if you are able to generate financing, if you can raise debt or equity, then you should also raise debt and invest that in Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. that would be the case for for other companies like MicroStrategy looks at it that way. Mm -hmm. We're not even a Bitcoin miner. But that's, you know, so that, that's my thought on the Bitcoin mining network and the dynamic model over time. I think that some people intentionally misunderstand this, like people that are like proof of stakers, they, they intentionally misunderstand it because if they misunderstand it, then they can assume that energy consumption is linear and then they can, you know, play the ESG card and pretend that they're, you know, they do their virtue signaling and say they're doing something good for the environment because they're not using energy. Right. But the truth is they're not using energy, nor are they using technology. <laughs> they're not using hardware technology, engineering technology, or energy, nor are they submitting their network to competition. Yeah. And they're not using external capital, political, or financial. What they're doing is they're creating a protocol, a virtual protocol, in order to, in order to create security. And even there, if you're going to rely upon a virtual protocol, to create security, you'd be better off to stake the protocol with an asset that is outside of the network, that is ex external to the network. So for example, the Lightning Network makes a lot more sense because it's staked with Bitcoin than if it was staked with Lightning Coin. Right. Yeah. And it's paying, again, paying the revenues to for services rendered which is actually the routing of transactions versus just how much Bitcoin you hold. It's not, a, not how it works. It, so I think this is a key point here is that the proof of work energy expenditure is actually transforming what would just be kind of video game asset into a macroeconomic asset. There's a real, it's creating a, a vortex in the real world. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, that it's, it's your, it's your connection to, thermodynamic reality and socio-political reality exactly you yes. can't be in denial of those two yes. But yes what what people think of you matters if the person is the police officer on the beat or yeah. runs the country what they think of you matters yes and what nature thinks of you matters if you decide yes. to step yes. off a cliff by yeah. looking the wrong way Nature's opinion matters right. whether or not you respect nature or not. And so it's very important that if you're building something that you want to last for a thousand years, you respect politics yeah. and you respect thermodynamics and you respect physics. Yes. And proof of work is this uh, is very creative invention to, cre uh, to continually connect and synchronize Right. The Bitcoin network with political, physical reality. Uh, yeah, it's never, holding. Never ending, never ending evolution. Every four years, every two right. years, Hol new miner, a new chip, a new place, a new thing. Yeah. Throw away the old. The, you know, you have to, the old generation has to die so yes. the new generation can form so that the creature can evolve. Right. Otherwise, the creature stagnates. And, all, and becomes progressively more fragile. Right. 
until it's no longer capable of competing in the real world. And, and that that energetic anchor to these to these realities, you know, energetic, which begets socio-political reality. This is what's keeping all network participants honest and accountable, right? There's this synchronization and rule set imposed upon them every 10 minutes that you can't avoid. It's like gravity, you know, you just cannot ignore it. Yeah, it's quite a wonderful thing. It's a it's yeah. a crypto universe. Yeah. Satoshi played God. Created, you know, either call it creating your own universe and setting the planets in motion by defining the space-time constant, or the other metaphor is you release the creature into cyberspace. You set the genetic DNA of the yeah. creature. You controlled right. how it will procreate, and once you release the thing, then you know it spreads as, as some kind of swarm life form, you know, continually evolving. So. So I think with, with that, I think we conclude that the Bitcoin mining network and the Bitcoin network in general is quite a wonderful thing. Now, the next question is, how does it scale? How does, if we go beyond the network, the primary, the primary purpose of the Bitcoin mining network is to provide security and enforce you know, protocol integrity and durability of the system. And it does that very well. But so how do we actually scale out to provide hundreds of billions of transactions a day to billions of people on the planet at the mm -hmm. speed of light, you know, using the latest computer technology? And that's, I think, where a lot of people fall down. They don't, you know, they, they just want to look at the base chain and say, well, it moves seven transactions a second. And so you can't scale. But but they lack the imagination to understand the consequences of the layering. So the Bitcoin monetary network, it scales based upon platforms at the layer two level and then applications above that level. And you could call them layer three applications or you could call, and you can also have applications embedded in applications on top of applications. Mm -hmm. So you could have layers four, five, six, and seven, and eventually you've got, and you could have interplay between the applications. But um, for the purpose of our discussion, let's just call them layer two platforms and layer three applications in order to keep from getting too confusing in our semantics. So what do I, what's the most important one? Well, lightning is a very interesting and maybe the most important layer two platform. And the idea behind lightning is I want something to be exponentially faster and exponentially cheaper. And in return, I'm willing to secure uh, exponentially less um, money. So if I have only $100 at risk, then there's no reason why I couldn't do 10 million transactions on that channel. And, uh, and that totally makes sense because as you scale out, if you look at the transactions that 8 billion people need to make on this planet every single day, you know, aren't, aren't the majority of the transactions are actually of value less than $1. In fact, there are plenty of transactions that could be valued in pennies. And then the big transactions might be, might be $10, $100, or $1,000. 
if you I, I probably if you were to look at the transaction stream on the Visa network or the MasterCard network, right? I mean, the average check is like 28 bucks or something, mm -hmm. but there's billions and billions and billions of them. They go on. So that you don't really need the final settlement security of Bitcoin because that's the highest level of security in the world. <clears throat> and you're getting that to move a billion dollars. You probably only need to, to move a billion dollars around, you know, occasionally. It's like if I moved seven nuclear powered aircraft carriers per second anywhere in the universe, I could probably win whatever war I wanted to win. If, if that's my if that's what I'm using my teleportation power for. So Bitcoin is good for teleporting large chunks of value. But for for all of the routine work, you want something smaller. And so the logical thing to do is the way lightning gets out of it is you're putting liquidity in a channel, you're putting value in a channel, and the channel is at risk, but the overall blockchain is and in and of course, the beauty is you get to keep your keys and keep custody of that. So that's a very fascinating thing. Um, you can build the universe on lightning. So, in, so presumably, you could give 8, million, 8 billion people lightning wallet or wallets, more than one. You could build lightning into PayPal and Square Cash and Apple Pay and Google Pay and Facebook in every messaging app. And um, you could use it at all scale, not just to move money, but to move anything. The other day I did a thousand Satoshi transaction on Lightning for one Satoshi in one second. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So Lightning is a is an an obvious um, layer too, and um, and the simple the the simple design idea is I create a channel with a million times less Bitcoin in it, and I move it a million times faster. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that works fine. I mean, and there are other approaches, of course, but um, if we give up, um, you can give up uh, all of the proof of work because you don't have as much at stake. Mm. And um, and you're, sta you're creating a staked network, but you're staking it with an external asset that derives its value 
from external assets external to it mm-hmm. energy capital and political capital and technical capital are flowing into bitcoin capital and bitcoin capital is then flowing into the lightning network in order to secure it so once you get that idea you realize that um, a layer one, layer two solution is a lot better idea than a higher performance layer one solution because making the layer one twice as fast or three times as fast or 10 times as fast or 100 times fast it doesn't get you to a million times as fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what you're doing is it's no different than the common sense way that human beings solve every problem. If you had a million dollars in the bank, and you were going out on a Saturday night and you needed to spend money quickly, you would take $100 in cash and you would break it into $25 bills. You put it in your wallet and you would rest assured that you can't lose more than $100 and you would leave the rest of the money locked up in the bank. And the money in the bank takes 48 hours to get at and takes lots of degrees of authentication. Mm -hmm. Is behind three feet of steel and the money in your wallet, mm-hmm. you know, is in your front pocket and it takes one second to get at. And, you know, occasionally you drop a $5 bill on the floor when you're <laughs> drunk and the life goes on. <laughs> and if, if somebody said you had to take the entire million dollars with you out to a nightclub every Saturday night, you would say, that's pretty stupid. <laughs> And they said, well, you know, the bank vault doors, they're too heavy. We're just going to have to re-engineer them to make them a thousand times lighter so that you can open the bank vault doors faster so that you can access the million dollars on Saturday night while you're drinking. Yeah. yeah. You might think, well, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to actually have access to all my money while I'm drinking mm-hmm. on a Saturday night. Well, the- and the same is true with the idea of a, of a base layer, right? Maybe it's not such a good idea to have that many transactions on the base layer mm-hmm. because, because every single moving part is just something to break, <clears throat> right? And, uh, and so you, you got yourself too many moving parts. You don't want it. So the layer two platform is this idea that what I want to do is I want to just take, uh, I want to create a cache Uh, a cash, if you will, of a much smaller amount of value that I have that is much less at risk that I can afford to move much quicker and I don't need the same degree of security on it. And um, Lightning is not the only layer two platform you can conceive of. You can get another crypto network could be a layer two platform. In theory, you could spin up a proof of stake network and you could stake it with Bitcoin and it, you know, and it wouldn't be uh, a theoretically different thing. If you spin up, you can also spin up a, a crypto network proof of stake, and then you can move Bitcoin through it. But if you're if you're using the native token and moving Bitcoin, then your Bitcoin's only as secure as the native token. Mm-hmm. And and of course, if the native token is ginned out of thin air and yo-yo coin, yeah, right, then then that's a problem. Ultimately, the real issue with layer twos is, is you're moving a portion of value into, a la- into that layer two, trusting the layer two in order to get performance or functionality. Exactly. So, so you can do it. 
You can do it with lightning. And the logical thing you do is you stake with Bitcoin and then you reduce the you reduce the risk to the channel liquidity. That's a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's logical. Another way to do it is um is like to build some kind of system. Like maybe if I was in an exchange and I had Bitcoin on the exchange and I created an API to the exchange that was programmable, then in a way the exchange is, is holding the Bitcoin. The API is providing you with a, a very fast speed. Now you've taken a different risk. You've taken exchange risk, you know, which is some counterparty risk of some sort. If you uh, if you use a Paxos or a Nidig platform, those are those are kind of more conventional platforms to build applications on top of. Like Nidig has a platform for you to build a credit card plugged into Bitcoin, mm -hmm. and, and Paxos is a platform, you know, plugged into PayPal, you know, to their application. And so if you if you want that kind of platform. You plug a mobile application into one of those platforms. There is some risk with that counterparty. Yep. It is limited to the amount of Bitcoin you're handling on the platform. And you can do all sorts of things to mitigate the risk. But clearly, there are there is a need for layer two platforms. And there isn't a need for just one layer two platform. Like Lightning is a compelling decentralized you know, layer two platform because it's decentralized. But there are a lot of layer two platforms that will be centralized because they need to be regulated in order to in order to meet with regulatory compliance obligations. Yep. And there are a lot of counterparties, like a credit card company might might prefer to work with a centralized layer two than a decentralized layer two, because they have regulatory constraints of their right. own. Yeah. And this is all this is similarly rooted in something very fundamental as proof of work is there's this fundamental trade-off between security and freedom typically. And so in money, we're, we're saying that the security model of Bitcoin is its decentralization, but with that comes a lot of work, right? It doesn't do many transactions per second, but what you can do is abstract that Bitcoin to a more centralized database, whether it's a, a, a custodian or a lightning, a lightning is kind of a decentralized, um, centralizing force you pick up all this functionality but you're giving up some of the trust minimization you get at the base layer i i would say that if your focus is on property and what you want is digital property you want the system optimized for durability and integrity over time and performance and functionality and compliance are not on your list your mm -hmm. list is durability integrity immortality yeah very simple. But as you move toward applications and you move away from property toward applications, you either have to optimize for functionality. Like if there, if there is no functionality, there's no application. Mm -hmm. Or you have to optimize for performance. If I can't pay for the coffee, you know, within one second, I can't pay for the coffee. Or you have to optimize for um, compliance. If I really want to um, uh, to issue an insurance policy, or I want to issue a security, or if I want to issue maybe a yield uh, a yield token, and it's illegal in a certain state, then if I want to do it, I have to actually comply. 
And compliance pops up with stable coins. Mm-hmm. Compliance pops up with DeFi exchanges. Compliance pops up with derivatives. Compliance will pop up with any kind of thing that looks like it's a security token. These are all applications. And, but, you know, is there a future for those applications on top of Bitcoin? Yeah. But Bitcoin's not the application. Right. Uh, it's, it's, and the application will be built on a layer two platform or it'll just be built naked against the Bitcoin, right? Maybe it, maybe it is, you know, you don't use a platform like I can implement my Bitcoin credit card using the Nighting platform, or I could hire an army of programmers and I could build it one off, mm-hmm. right? Right. Right. There's this, there's this little battle of, you know, do I build a custom app or do mm-hmm. I build an app using your SDK? Mm-hmm. And so platforms are going to be, you know, either operating system type things with an SDK, you know, yeah, this, I mean, that's what they're going to be. They're going to look like that. And it, it might be, it looks like an AWS where they spin up services. Mm-hmm. You can imagine AWS spinning up a, a, a whole package of like a lightning nodes. If I could spin up my lightning nodes, you know, and run them, maybe I would do that. Maybe I wouldn't do that. Uh, probably lightning's not the best example because people are looking for something totally decentralized there. But, but, um, uh, a better example would just be an SDK that allows someone to deploy a mobile app that has uh, has Lightning and Bitcoin yeah. money transfers embedded in the mobile app, and I just want to do it quick and easy. Yeah, I, I guess so like I can scale the back end. There's kind of a continuum, right, where we have this totally kind of decentralized layer two and Lightning. Maybe you have SDKs in the middle versus a fully centralized solution via via NIDIG or someone else. But it just yeah. speaks to the versatility of Bitcoin, which again, you can't get from a gold, right? You can't get this versatility of application layer with something like gold. And there's going to be competition, right? Yeah. Ma- massive competition with regard to what are the SDKs and the layer two toolkits? Yes. You know, and even and even Lightning has like Lightning Labs creating a toolkit to help you. Yeah. Boy, lightning, right? So, so that's competition, and it's sort of interesting, but it gets a bit, it gets theoretical in a way. So, it's actually probably more instructive to move down to the to the applications themselves and talk about what are the applications of Bitcoin that scale the system, because these are the things that are that make the difference. And uh, once you start to think about the the way the range of applications, then you figure out what you might build into your platform if you're trying to create a business hosting those applications. Um, so let's talk about that. Um, the, the obvious application, you know, is 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 the individual holder that owns Bitcoin or just holds it in cold storage for long periods of time. So it's like the family or the individual. And I think that's pretty well understood and that's been pioneered for a while. Um, the, the thing that's, um, that's varying is the way that that individual chooses to hold the Bitcoin. And that's where it gets really interesting. So, um, for example, probably the, 
Well, one thing I probably want to start with is this observation that that one interesting application of Bitcoin is a bond. You can actually create a derivative or a security of Bitcoin and scale the network with the bond. So if a government owns Bitcoin, right, the government is the customer. And if the government then buys the Bitcoin and then issues sovereign debt, the sovereign debt becomes a Bitcoin derivative. Mm -hmm. so, you're, so you're creating credit from Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the base layer money. Mm -hmm. And and the debt or the credit of the government or the bond is the is the layer two money. Um, it could be backed in whole by Bitcoin, like one hundred percent, or it could be in part by Bitcoin or something. If a municipality, like a city, buys Bitcoin and issues municipal municipal bonds, that becomes another form of a, of an application of Bitcoin. If an agency like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or any international agency, you know, United Nations or the like, if they were to buy Bitcoin and then issue any kind of bonds, it's this, it's, it's another example of a derivative. When a corporation buys Bitcoin, like MicroStrategy, and then we issue a bond that's backed by the Bitcoin, we created that derivative. And you could even take you could take a Bitcoin, there's $700 billion of this Bitcoin out there, and you could issue asset-backed bonds, call it Bitcoin-backed securities. They used to be mortgage-backed securities. And with mortgage-backed securities, we take a bunch of heterogeneous assets and we securitize them into, into a note. And so Bitcoin is, imagine you had 21 million identical houses called Bitcoins. <laughs> And you decided you were just going to create a bond backed by 11 of them or 37 of them, an asset-backed bond. All, all of those uh, are applications of Bitcoin. They're not applications the way a computer scientist thinks of them. They're financial applications of Bitcoin. You can have technical applications of Bitcoin that are running on mobile devices like mobile apps. You could have web applications. You could have uh, you could have um, financial applications of Bitcoin, and a lot of times when people think about scaling, they uh, they only think about the technical applications, and they don't really think about the financial applications. If we um, if we move on to the next layer or next type of application, think about mobile payments. A mobile payment, a mobile app that does payments is is something you can plug into Bitcoin. Like Square and PayPal have plugged mobile apps into Bitcoin. And what does the mobile app do? Well, maybe it lets you buy Bitcoin. Maybe it lets you send Bitcoin. Maybe it lets you send Bitcoin via the Lightning Network, like the Moon Wallet. That's an application. But maybe it lets you send Bitcoin on its own proprietary network, like Square Cash Tags. You can send Bitcoin between one cash tag and another cash tag instantly for free. Or you could send you could send Bitcoin, uh, you know, between any two mobile apps within the network using the handle of the network, right? If you are doing that, then probably the the application provider custody some of the Bitcoin and they're moving it and they become a fractional bank of Bitcoin. Bitcoin becomes the central bank in cyberspace, or as our friend Ross Stevens would say, the decentral bank 
<laughs> in cyberspace. And then all of these other mobile apps or websites become fractional banks plugged into the central bank of cyberspace. And, um, and uh, you know, they, they custody some amount of Bitcoin. Uh, the mobile payment space is particularly promising because all these mobile applications are one step removed from being mobile banks. And there's no reason why you know, Facebook and Apple and Google and the like don't eventually become mobile banks. It's like it was a matter of time before they let you send photos. And then at some point they decided to let you send videos. And then they decided they give you emojis. And uh, then they decided they let you send audio files. Yeah. And in a way you could think of Bitcoin, you know, it's just another file type. Yeah, it's, it's all, money, it's all media. Money type yeah so kind of inevitable now you start with mobile payments and then when you start to think about moving that that around and the services that consumers want right you're, you're now into retail banking so the retail banking applications are in essence savings accounts and credit lines based on bitcoin for consumers so you've got billions of people that presumably want to carry they want a wallet with an asset in it, and uh, the asset would be Bitcoin. And then they want to borrow against it. So you want to be able to draw down a credit line at an interest rate. So I carry around 10,000 in Bitcoin, I borrow $1,000, I pay 4% interest. Now I've, I've drawn the credit line in the local fiat currency in question, euros, dollars, yen. I pay the interest rate, whatever that is, and then I spend the money. That's pretty popular. I mean, credit cards are quite popular, right? How many credit cards are there in the world? So we're really talking about credit cards drawn against Bitcoin property instead of unsecured credit lines. And then the opposite is, uh, is also the case. Maybe the consumers want savings accounts that generate yield. So I have Bitcoin, I either hold the Bitcoin or I move the Bitcoin into a yield generating account or I move the Bitcoin into, uh, or I put it in a collateral line and I, I, I use it and pledge it as credit. Now, is that, um, is that the same everywhere in the world? No, not really. Uh, you're going to have different regulators in every jurisdiction in every state. They're going to tell you whether or not you need a money transfer license or a banking license or whether or not you need a, a securities uh, registration in order to give yield or give loans or move money mm -hmm. around. Right. Um, and of course, there are always nuances. I think this is one of the nuances that called El, caused El Salvador to designate Bitcoin as legal tender so that uh, they could easily move Bitcoin around on mobile apps. Uh, in a place where the government has collapsed, then the solution is going to be um, a mobile wallet with lightning because mm -hmm. there is no regulator. And, mm -hmm. and wherever, wherever you have that kind of, of weak governance, then it's not going to matter. As the, as the governance gets stronger, then there are going to be questions of what's your compliance requirements to do a retail banking application. 
And it looks like it's, it's literally different state to state, country to country, jurisdiction to jurisdiction and evolving right now. And um, that's one of the reasons why maybe centralized application CFI will actually beat the DeFi. I mean, because, you know, the, the message of DeFi is, oh, it's really expensive going through all this AML KYC. Yes, that's true. But it's also illegal not to. Mm -hmm. So so the real question will be, can you do it? And how much validation do you have to go through to do it? And how compliant do you want to be? Hey, everybody. So that was episode 16 of the Sailor series. And we started off this installment by taking a dive into the economic dynamics of Bitcoin mining and what Saylor describes as the shift from a energy intensive business to a technology intensive business. And again, if we're looking, I think it's important to reflect here on Bitcoin uh, as Saylor described it in a previous episode as a microcosm of capitalism. Because what we're seeing here and describing here in Bitcoin mining is indeed a natural progression of capitalism itself. So this is akin to the Bitcoin mining shifting from energy intensity to technology intensity is akin to the shift from labor intensity to capital intensity in agriculture. So what does this mean? Uh, it's in the name, actually, capitalism, right? The purpose and intent of capitalism is to accumu accumulate capital. And capital is anything that accelerates an actor from an intention to the realization of that intention. Um, so if you are trying to go from New York to LA, you know, your shoes will accomplish that aim at a certain speed. A car will do it much faster and a plane will do it even faster than that. So as you increase uh, your sophistication of the capital stack from shoes to car to an airplane, you're actually decreasing the distance in time between you and your goal. In this case, going from New York to LA. So as humans accumulate more capital, we, they are further magnifying the economic output of labor, right? That's what capital really does. So naturally, you know, in the case of agriculture, when we didn't have much capital, and this could be, you know, knowledge, tools, et cetera, um, it took a lot of man hours to produce enough food to feed everybody. But as you, as we start to accumulate capital and we have additional layers of, of labor magnification, it takes less and less labor to feed the whole population. And so this is reflected in, um, I forget the exact numbers, but you know, clearly at the dawn of the agricultural age, it was basically 100% of human labor going into feeding everyone. And today in the world economy, I think agricultural employment is sub 5%. So that is only possible through the accumulation of capital. And indeed, this is the purpose of civilization, actually, is to trade and innovate to magnify productivity in this way. And really, those are, in fact, you know, despite common misconception, people think government is, is involved in the creation of capital. It's only through trade and innovation that we can create capital in this way. And so for Bitcoin, this pattern plays out 
in the network shifting from a very energy intensive model as it was early on when people were just mining on computers um, to a more sophisticated capital stack and uh, therefore more capital intensity over time. And so Sailor's making the argument here that, again, contrary to common misconception that the Bitcoin price will always track to its energy consumption, that he actually thinks we either have hit peak energy consumption or will soon hit peak energy consumption. And then the intensity, uh, the capital intensity uh, of Bitcoin mining will shift from energy towards towards capital, towards technology rather. So, and that this is a pattern too that, you know, he's not just hypothesizing this. This is well-established already in Bitcoin's 13-year history. So I thought, you know, that's a very intelligent way to look at it. And once again, it's just uh, pointing to Bitcoin as a microcosm of capitalism, which is a very useful model for understanding its it's resistance to disruption. Um, so this is, and there's a there's another dynamic equilibrium here. There's a dance, right, between energy producers and technologists um, that make up this microcosm of capitalism. So this is very much like a Darwinian dynamic equilibrium, one in which where energy producers are effectively using brute force in the attempt to solve the Bitcoin mining puzzle and produce new Bitcoin. Um, but they are competing against technologists that are using technique instead. So they're trying to get more efficiency per unit of energy um, in, in the production of hashes. So, you know, a hash is just a, uh, a guess or a vote in this mining puzzle. And so uh, energy producers are just trying to cast as many votes as possible, kind of brute force approach, but then the technologist side of it is more dependent on technique, trying to get more hashes per unit of energy. So this is a classic, you know, magnitude of force versus efficiency of force struggle. Uh, and this has been observed and written about in, in many markets. Um, and you have investors standing outside of this struggle you know, effectively allocating capital to whichever one is more profitable at that time. So as Saylor describes this, this is a very delicate dance or balance of power in that we're, we're constantly pushing the envelope on energy production. You know, um, older generation miners are rolling to cheaper and cheaper energy sources. Everyone's incentivized to monetize cheap energy uh, or, or stranded energy. And then on the other side, you have technologists incentivized to do competition to squeeze as much margin or as many hashes per, from each unit of energy as possible. And this is, again, looking at Bitcoin as a microcosm of capitalism, this is that dynamic Darwinian equilibrium that keeps the whole ecosystem healthy. Um, this over time is driving down energy consumption per exahash generated and causes the improvement of semiconductors or ASICs. So the net outcome of this is, is that same progression we just identified in capitalism, where we have this shift from energy intensity to technology intensity. And through an accounting lens, we could say this is a move from variable cost structure, right, where most of the cost per per Bitcoin produce is this variable of energy to a more fixed cost structure where you're actually 
uh, assembling these uh, pieces of mining infrastructure, ASICs, et cetera, and then amortizing them over time. Um, and so this will, over time, shift the, the contention, actually. Uh, the market competition will shift from being one primarily of energy production, and we would expect it to shift more towards technology fabrication as more of the mining competition's intensity shifts away from energy and into technology. So this is really important too, because as the network then grows, becomes larger and continues to proliferate, it becomes more technology intensive. This is going to incentivize outside capital allocators to take it even more seriously, right? Again, you, with, a, with more fixed cost of production, you get a more predictable and manageable market or, or production process to participate in. So larger, more risk-averse pools of capital will now start to look at Bitcoin mining um, as an investable domain. So another way to maybe think about this is that capital itself is in a, it's a form of frozen time or energy. So as the network becomes uh, more constant within the plans of capital allocators, which is to say it's larger, it's more robust, less likely to fail, right? So it's kind of forcing everyone to develop a Bitcoin strategy, as we've talked about previously. Um, you'll see more um, investment related to the fabrication of ASICs, of the technology side of the business come into play. And what this does now is it starts to actually blow up that spatial and temporal bubble we talked about in the last two episodes where Sailor laid out his seven layers of proof of work network security, um, such that if you want to come into the Bitcoin mining game and say mount a 51% attack, you're now competing with all of these other uh, technology fabricators that are incentivized uh, effectively to plug their production networks into Bitcoin mining and, and generate profits from them. So it becomes this, this is where those layers are developed, I guess. Um, and maybe, you know, the other way to think about this is that clearly the energy piece is very direct. You're just plugging in energy, you're running it through the mining competition and you're trying to produce Bitcoin. But when you plug in the capital piece, you're talking about connecting production branches of production that are much longer, much more roundabout, much more complicated, much more capital intensive. So they are able to bring a lot more wealth to bear into the network over time versus just monetizing energy directly. So this is I mean, the visualization I have here is we're moving from something that's purely dynamic, which is just the monetization of energy directly, to something that's starting to lay down uh, static layers as well in the form of, of capital networks. So this, if we're, again, looking at it through the lens of capitalism, this is what we do on a global economy basis, right? We're trying to amplify the returns on our energy, our labor energy, by accumulating capital, we would expect the Bitcoin network to follow a similar path and that it would initially be a lot of raw power being monetized directly. But over time, 
the technology, which is to say the capital intensity of the business should increase. And you'll actually get greater returns on that energy expenditure such that energy usage peaks at some point. It does not track to the Bitcoin price forever, um, which would say Sailor brilliantly elaborated that it probably moves at the log of the price or something like that. So, you know, great points there. I guess the, the overall moral of the story is that <clears throat> all this open competition in Bitcoin, the microcosm of capitalism, is what keeps all market actors honest and adaptive, right? You're constantly being pressure checked by competition. You have constant incentives to evolve, to be at the cutting edge, uh, to cut cost, to create value. And, you know, it's this Darwinism that keeps ecosystems free of failed or weak strategies, right? We see this in nature. If you if there's an animal in the herd and he's moving more slowly than the rest, then those are the ones the predators pick off. And the net outcome of that is that the herd is best conditioned for resisting predation. So similarly, in the Darwinism of capitalism, uh, weak or inferior strategies or, or non-cost-effective strategies get picked off, right? They get destroyed. They get outcompeted. So that, in a nutshell... <laughs> is why Bitcoin, via the proof-of-work mining algorithm, uh, wins, right? And it wins over all, all of these other consensus mechanisms, like you know, proof-of-stake is being theorized about a lot lately, but it suffers from a distinct lack of this Darwinian element that makes proof-of-work so viable. Um, so just great points there, connecting capitalism and Darwinism. Uh, so and I got into a little bit of an exchange on how Bitcoin actually bootstraps its market value. And the, there's a point here I've talked about before, but I'll reiterate as I think it's important. You know, in the market for gold mining, the production cost tends to converge to the market value. Again, there's a dynamic equilibrium between the two, uh, such that if gold is selling for $2,000 an ounce in the marketplace and I can go out and mine it, at a fully loaded cost of production of say $1,900 per ounce, I am incentivized to increase production, right? To allocate more capital into the production of gold right up until I'm producing at a cost of $1,999.99, right? So long as there is any economic margin left in my production process, I'm incentivized to produce gold. So I see this as, we, again, we have these larger production structures, these more roundabout production processes, specifically related to semiconductors and ASICs, coming into the Bitcoin scene, connecting into this Bitcoin microcosm of, of capitalism. And as more, they're, br again, bringing more force to bear, more wealth to bear into the network, um, channeling more energy is maybe another way to think about it, that we're, they're actually increasing the cost per Bitcoin, uh, and at each having, all of that collective energy and technology intensity is going into mining. You know, the daily production gets cut in half. So if we're doing 900 Bitcoin per day in the current having epoch, that goes immediately to 450. But the energy and technology intensity did not change that much. And actually, it changes less and less over time as energy is a smaller component, right? Energy can be turned off quickly, but these large 
production processes, roundabout production processes, processes of capital cannot be so easily turned off, right? They're much more permanent than just the energy side of the business. So this means, in my mind, the way I understand this, that miners are effectively incentivized to hold Bitcoin, to not sell Bitcoin in anticipation of each halving, because at each halving, the the Bitcoin side of their uh, P&L, the Bitcoin revenue is actually getting cut in half. So you're incentivized to hold Bitcoin and not sell the cover production cost in anticipation of each halving. This is, and in the competition between miners, you want to hold as long as possible. So the stronger balance sheets will tend to prevail or more prudently managed balance sheets. And this engages this like a game theoretic uh, process between miners that's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've talked about this in some of my writing previously, where there's this virtuous cycle of Bitcoin that no one has figured out how to break. You know, I've called this a, an unstoppable vortex of incentives. And it's one in which uh, basically Bitcoin mining is the security budget for Bitcoin. So as more energy and technologies allocated into the network, Bitcoin becomes more secure, right? This makes its network more robust, makes Bitcoin a better store of value. As Bitcoin becomes a better store of value, more people want to buy it as money, buy it and hold it as a store of value. This causes its price to increase. A price increase in Bitcoin makes mining more profitable. As mining becomes more profitable, more energy and technology comes under the mining network. And that makes Bitcoin more secure again, and so on and so forth. So there's this virtuous cycle that is Bitcoin, you know, centered on this uh, idea of Bitcoin as capitalism, really. It's like an unstoppable game um, that really just forces rational economic actors to play. So that was a real interesting discussion there. Um, but see, they did make some good counterpoints that you can't necessarily know the technology side of the inputs, right? Because that that's subject to innovation, but we would still expect that whatever the best semiconductor or ASIC technology available is, like that would be brought to bear in this game. Because again, it's um, the difficulty adjustment constantly makes it more or less difficult based on, on innovation. So it makes Bitcoin adaptive to innovation itself, um, which is, you know, Hard to get your head around. It's like Bitcoin is a living money in a lot of ways. So speaking of living money, we went into a discussion about how Bitcoin would uh, scale through layers. Um, this is something nature does as well. Nature evolves in layers. Uh, so looking at layer two itself, it's basically making trade-offs where you're giving up some trust minimization of Bitcoin at the base layer to pick up some additional functionality at a higher layer, layer two. And this is very similar and intuitive to a trusted third party, right? Where, so Bitcoin itself at the base layer, what makes it so expensive and slow is that every node and every miner is checking every other node and miners work, right? It's, it's distributed consensus. It's purposefully slow and expensive 
so that you don't need to trust any single actor, right? It's, it's optimizing for decentralization. So clearly there's a lot more energy necessary to update this global set of ledgers versus just trying to update one ledger, which is effectively, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. That's what a trusted third party would be, right? That's what the Fed is. That's what your bank is. Um, you're just trusting one group, one political aggregation of willpower versus the uh, distributed self-interest of, of all actors. So, but because of that, there's a big gain in efficiency, right? You can get many more transactions per second on something like PayPal or Venmo than you can Bitcoin base layer. So what is Bitcoin going to do? Bitcoin to scale in terms of payments per second, it has to scale through layers. You cannot, you cannot get rid of this trade-off at the base layer. We need 21 million and we need decentralization. Those are the, you know, or say fixed supply and decentralization. These are the most important properties of a non-state money. And that's what the Bitcoin base layer optimizes for. But to get it um, circulating as a more effective medium of exchange, Bitcoin has to scale at higher layers. And, um, you know, we see this already with, with third parties. You know, there's groups like NIDIG that are basically acting as a Bitcoin bank. So you can, they're offering all the traditional financial services you're accustomed to using in the legacy financial system, but on a Bitcoin standard instead. So that's one way to approach it, right? You can have layer two uh, organizations. You can also have layer two applications, which we went into Lightning Network in a little bit. But, uh, you know, the point here is that we have to optimize for decentralization at the base layer, as we've enumerated plenty uh, in this series so far. And precisely because that keeps the money immune to opinion, politics, counterparty risk, right? It's a, it's a neutral set of rules that no one can change. And that's the most important property of Bitcoin at the base layer. So we, could, we can kind of look at it like this, that money itself, and this is more general than just Bitcoin, is this base layer protocol. It is this set of rules that ideally no one can change. This is kind of what gold was historically in the analog age, right? It was favored as money because no one could mess with the supply. Um, no one could change the chemical properties of gold, et cetera, et cetera. But everything... So we could say that money is kind of like the base layer protocol for human action. Everything on top of that is really just an application. So, you know, and this maybe gets into, we, we talk about the functions of money, right? It's a store value, medium of exchange, and a unit of account. This is to say that that base layer really provides us things that are very important to human being which is a means of establishing value, right? What, what do other people find valuable? A means for actually transacting with others to discover what is valuable and an accounting system to communicate the whole thing. So, and maybe this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but this is the way I'm thinking about it lately. And I think it ties in nicely is that if we look at it this way, that money is the base layer for human action, and then all the institutions and businesses and organizations we build on top of it are effectively applications. Um, we could say that this becomes a common thread between the two, that 
you know, individuals, uh, organisms, organizations, they're all just wealth strategies effectively. Um, and when I say wealth, I mean, specifically, a lot of people think that oh, wealth is like, you know, your riches or your stuff, but even in an organic sense, you could just consider wealth as being like time saved through, through some organic specialization or innovation. Um, and at a very, you know, deeply biological level, that's how evolution occurs, actually, is there's some need, the environment is uh, demanding some need of the organism, right? Whether it's an eye to see uh, that lets you gather food more quickly or find mates more quickly. Um, that evolution itself is the buildup of these economic specializations over time. So it's increasing the organism's productivity. And then at a collective level, you know, organisms come together to do the same thing. You know, for human beings, it's trade and innovation. The reason we uh, coalesce as a civilization is because we are more productive acting in concert than we are in isolation. If that were not true, then we would not be grouping together like this. Um, so you'd say that at a biological level, that evolution is occurring through specialization. At the socioeconomic level, innovation occurs through specialization as well. Clearly, that's how uh, you know, a tool that's more fit to its job just tends to outcompete in the marketplace. So herein lies that connection where these, these are very similar dynamics, right? We have evolution. That's kind of this organic process of innovation. You know, the body or uh, is learning through interaction with its environment to become more fit over time. And then we have innovation, which is more like an inorganic process of evolution, so, you know, in the case of humans, we're actually figuring out how to be more fit to our environment through material engagement, right? Through tools, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think that is just a big worldview shift right there, um, especially for people unfamiliar with economics and monetary history. I think the prevailing belief is that government is just the originator of money somehow, you know, government's like the base layer and then they issue money and there's a market on top of that. But when you study socioeconomic history and, you know, evolutionary biology, how did we get to this point? It's actually the precise opposite. It's that we are engaged in a market process in nature. Nature is a market process. We keep talking about Darwinism and capitalism. I mean, they're very similar. Um, and money is really beneath government, right? Government is just one business model. It's a business model designed, you know, to monopolize violence and enforce property rights ostensibly. Uh, but it itself is just a business. It is just another wealth acquisition strategy, similar to every other organization and organism in the world. Um, so, this maybe points to how big of a deal Bitcoin is, right? It's something that's disrupting money, which is the base layer operating system for human being in the most fundamental way possible. So in my mind, this explains why so few people understand the significance of it. And it also points to, you know, those of us that study it closely, maybe we're not seeing larger implications of, of what this might be. Um, 
So, you know, I guess the closest analogy here is that I think the transformation from the agricultural age into the into the industrial age will be equally significant as the transition from the industrial age into the digital age. So if you could imagine being a farmer in the agricultural age and trying to envision what where we are today, right? Where the industrial age has brought us, um, you know, flying and telecommunications and all of these things, it would just sound like magic, right? And this gets us all the way back to the beginning of the Sailor series where he quoted, um, I forget the, the author's name, but he says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I think this is just a great way to look at uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining again. And, you know, it comes down to the space protocol and the functions that it, that it serves, that money lets us store value, um, which is to say, we can hold something that other market actors find relevant, right? That other people find valuable, lets us accomplish trade, which gets us to the second function of money, which is free exchange. This is letting us become more energy efficient through trade and it facilitates innovation, which further increases our economic uh, efficiency. And then finally, money holds us to account, right? Which one of these applications, you know, organizations or, or any other application we build on top of the base layer of money, which one is working, which one is not, so that we can facilitate this process of creative destruction that uh, propels capitalism and Darwinism forward. So I hope you enjoyed that one. That was episode 16 of the Sailor series, and I will see you guys back here again soon.